All right. So homework five coming up due this week, uh, end of this week by Friday. Quiz five next week will cover chapters 11 and 12. We should be through with chapter 11 today or early Friday and then beyond to chapter 12. So that quiz will be next weekend. And then the exam three will be November 4th. So uh, Monday, the, Monday the 4th. Monday the 4th? Yes, Monday the 4th. And that'll cover chapters 10 through 12. And then there'll be one more exam towards the end of November and then a final. And we're getting close, getting close to the end right now. Solar observations, this third set will be due November 6th. And the iTunes quiz will be 11th of November through the 18th of November, covering the pictures from pretty much for the month of October, the 5th of October through the 8th of November. And then a few other assignments coming up after that I'll start putting up towards the, towards the latter part of this, of this month. So, questions, questions? No, no? No. All right. Picture of the day for today then is the North Celestial Tree. So looking towards the North Celestial Pole, picture was taken in southern Spain. And uh, looking out towards the North Celestial Pole, you can see Polaris right there, the bright star. Relatively close to the pole, but not right at it. Um, so it actually is making a little bit of an arc. And what we're seeing here is really what the apparent motion of the stars over the course of about a two hour period, about how far the stars would appear to move in about two hours. Really, it's what? It's the Earth rotating. So really it's the Earth rotating in the opposite direction and causing the stars to appear to move. But if you look at this, there's a whole bunch of little bunch of arcs here. And if you trace out any individual star, like here's one here that runs from about this point to up to there, that's about how far the stars, and I'm pretty sure that was two hours. Yeah, two hours and two hours set of exposures. So over the period of about two hours, how far the stars would appear to move in that short, in that, in that period of time. Further you get away from the pole, the bigger the arcs they make, the bigger circles. Closer you get to the pole, the smaller they will be. So we've got Polaris there right now, very close to the pole. Kind of nice, identifies the pole for us in the northern hemisphere. Those in the southern hemisphere don't have that. Uh, Coincidence that there doesn't happen to be a star near the South Celestial Pole, so it's not as easy to identify just sitting out there looking. Um, you can see the North Celestial Pole there. We're actually getting, the North Celestial Pole is getting closer and closer to Polaris. We'll reach its closest about 100 years from now, and then it will slowly start getting further and further away. So if you come back in thousands of years, then Polaris wouldn't be anywhere near the North Celestial Pole again. So. Questions? Questions? Yes, sir. No. No, that's how the image was taken. Yeah. Lined it up there, took the pictures over a series of, of about two hours, took a bunch of 30 second exposures. So it's not a whole, not a whole long exposure for two hours, but it was a bunch of 30 second worth of exposures, it says in the description. But yeah, no, that was actually taken, not put in the way. So photographer went, found the site where Polaris could be seen right through the branches and set up the equipment there. So Polaris is easy enough to see that you can find it. Yeah, that would be an interesting way to do it. Put it into a video and a time lapse and actually watch the stars, watch the stars moving there would be, would be really interesting. Any other questions? Yeah. What? Oh. 
Yeah, yeah, the way, that, way, they, way he's framed it, it's very nice. Very nice that way. Anything else? Anything else? No, no, okay. Back to chapter 11 then. Yeah. What time of day was it taken? Um, thank you. Uh, I'm not sure if it says. Probably would have been a while after sunset just to make sure the sky was dark enough. But you might be getting the glow of the city. This is near Seville, which is in southern Spain. So you might be getting the glow of the lights from the city. And when you take an exposure for a, if you're just looking there, it won't look that bright. But if you take an exposure over the period of hours, it will end up looking pretty bright. You know, if you were to do one from you know, the southern part of Harrisburg looking towards York, you're going to get brighter, or vice versa, looking towards the, that direction. So that's probably what it is. Not necessarily that it's that city. That's the area it was taken, but some, other, some city in that general direction, it, off towards the north. So if this was taken south of Seville, does it say where it was? Uh, it's the province, a province of Seville. So if it's south of south of the city, you'd be getting the city lights out towards the north. Anything? Anything? Oh, all right. On to chapter eleven, and see if we can get most of this finished up today. We should be through most of it by the end of the day today. We were looking here last time. We were we were making a star. So for the rest of the chapter, we're going to build a star, uh, starting with this great gas cloud out in space. And I'd gone through stage one last time. So the first stage was something, something starting this great cloud to collapse. This cloud that is many light years across contains many times the mass of the sun. And as it starts to collapse, it doesn't form one gigantic star. So it doesn't just collapse straight down to form one giant star. As it's spinning, slowly, but it'll spin faster and faster as it starts to collapse, it actually begins to fragment into different pieces. So it'll fragment initially into a couple larger pieces. Those will continue to fragment until you start to get down to a size where gravity begins to really kick in and be able to hold those fragments together. So you'll start off with one giant cloud, form a number of different pieces from that, form pieces from those as it starts to collapse. This is the very, very early stage. This is still incredibly cool. My material, nothing hot at all, no sign of nuclear reactions. We're not even getting close to that point yet. Um, so very, very cold temperatures still out there in space, but slowly collapsing and getting denser and denser. I'm sorry, which? Not probably not because most of those contain you know, thousands of times the mass of the sun, and I don't know the mass of the Canis Majoris off the top of my head, but it, it's one of the largest stars in terms of size. It's not one of them in terms of mass, if I'm correct. So in terms of mass, there are other stars that are <laughs> 70 or 80 times the mass of the sun. But it's not that big. It's big size-wise, but not big in terms of mass. And even though you've got, you've got thousands of times the mass of the sun, so you'd be trying to form stars that are much, much larger if that were to happen. Certainly, depending on how the gravity forms, you can form larger or smaller stars. So it might fragment more or less. You might start to form some clumps that get bigger and form a star that's 20 or 30 times the mass of the sun. 
You might get other stars, that, other, others that fragment several more times, and you get down to things that are the size of the sun. But now Canis Majoris probably would not be the same. I'd have to actually look up to see what the mass of it, what the mass of it is. So what's happening? Stage two. Now we, we started fragmenting that cloud. Now those fragments within it begin to collapse. They begin to come apart. They begin to collapse down. Eventually, the density of those fragments gets enough that there's enough gravity to hold them together. So if the gravity holds them together, then they're not fragmenting apart anymore. So once you get down to a certain size, a couple solar masses or so, then the density of that blob is now enough that gravity keeps it from fragmenting anymore. Over stage three, now we're going to start, as it collapses, the inside is going to start heating. It's not going to get very hot yet. It's only about 10,000 degrees. Uh, 10,000 degrees, that was about the chromosphere of the sun. If you recall, we talked about the sun, the surface. Not even close to the central temperatures. But it's gone from 10 degrees to 10,000. It's increased quite a bit. And it's increased completely because of gravity. Gravity pulling the material down. As you condense material down from being spread out down in closer, you're releasing energy. And that energy goes some, has to go somewhere. And it goes into heating up the cloud. So the particles are now moving faster and faster. And we're getting a higher temperature. 10,000 degrees won't come close to fusing two hydrogen nuclei. So you're not close to being able to produce any energy yet. But if you get that fragment to about 10,000 degrees, you're now getting to the point, you're getting to the point where it's actually at the, at the center where the surface is going to start giving off some radiation. We're going to actually be able to start being able to detect these. So the first couple stages, stages one through three, are really starting with that giant gas cloud, condensing it down, breaking it into little bits, and each of those little bits is going to eventually form a star. So here's some examples. This is Orion, Orion Nebula. So here's Orion out here. If you're looking out in the sky, nice and early this morning, you can see Orion still nicely visible. There's uh, Betelgeuse. There's Rigel, the two bright stars. You're all familiar with it, right? We, we, you drew Orion enough times that you're, you're sick of it. I know. So there's Orion. There's the belt. There's Orion's sword. If you ever go out and look at it, if you want to wait until January, February, when it's in the evening sky, you can do that as well. But that middle star in the sword is the Orion Nebula. You can actually see that with your naked eye. No, it won't look anything beautiful like these nice images here, but you'll see, you'll be able to actually see that with your naked eye. And that is where star formation is currently going on. So that is a region of star formation. That is a gas cloud that is in the process of collapsing. And as you zoom in and look at that a little bit more, so there, take that central portion, the sword of Orion, and expand it out. You can see that central, uh, the central area there. And again, if you expand that out and look at it in even more detail, you start to be able to see that there are little clumps. And that's what they're highlighting here. And up in these two, looking in either visible or in radio waves, you can actually see some clumps that are beginning to form. Now again, these time scales take you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. So we're just getting that little snapshot of what's going on at this second. We're not going to be able to come back you know, in a week and see a star forming there a star formed. We're only catching that very small snapshot. But within the entire section of Orion, you know, we have all the different stages we can look at. We can see stars starting to form. Yeah. How far is that nebula from Earth? Orion Nebula, 
few hundred light years, five, six, seven hundred light years, something so to that. Yeah. No. So what, what's formed right now? If, if you want, if, meaning you're thinking, if you're looking, if you could see it, what it's there right now? Yeah, it wouldn't make that much difference. It's within a thousand light years, I believe. So, but we're starting to see all the different stages. We can see things like little uh, gas clouds starting to develop. This is taken in the radio part of the spectrum, where you see some of these big globs not even emitting any uh, visible light yet. You see some down here where there's little stars starting to be buried within this, or protostars as we call them. We're seeing all those different stages just looking at different stars. So we can't look at one star and follow it through its life. But we can look at individual, a bunch of individual stars, and piece together what's going on in their lives. in a way, sort of like you want to study you know, the life cycle of a human, but you want to do it in a day? Well, you can't do it. But you could look at a baby, you could look at a kid, you could look at a teenager, you could look at an adult. You could look at you know, 10 different people from ages you know, birth to 80, 90, and you could probably get some idea of what, you know, what the progression of a human lifespan is like. That's what you've got to do with stars. You know, we can't sit there and wait for a star to go through its life because it will take you know, many, many times longer than any person will ever live. But we can look at all those stages. We can look at the birth stage. We can look at stars that are you know, teenagers. We can look at stars that are you know, adults. And we can look at stars that are reaching the end of their lives. And we can then piece together what's really going on. So that's part of what we're seeing in Orion is we're seeing a number of those very early stages all together. So stage four, there's our HR diagram. Since I tested you on that, I told you it's going to come back again and again. Well, there it is. Um, for the first time, as we reach this stage four, we have made to what we call a protostar. It's not quite a star. It's not producing energy at its core through nuclear reactions. But it now is to the point where it actually starts to appear on the HR diagram, where we can measure a temperature, a surface temperature. We can measure a luminosity and we can find out where it appears on the HR diagram. And you notice where it appears, what part of the HR diagram is it? It's up out in the red giant range, right? So there's, there's a big difference between a star, a protostar up here and a red giant star up here. Big, big difference in what's going on with them because a red giant is at the end of its life. The difference here is that these stars, while they'll make an appearance on the HR diagram, they're still embedded in that cloud of gas and dust. So you're not really going to see them. They're not just going to be standing out. They're still embedded. Their light is so faint that if you could account for all that gas and dust, you know where they'd be. But you wouldn't be confusing protostars that are just beginning to form up here with an actual star that has reached the end of its life. But it does. It ends up in the red. It starts out in the red giant range when it first comes on the HR diagram. Previous ones would be too cool, too faint. It would be way off the chart for what we normally use on the HR diagram. So we've reached a protostar. It's actually starting to look like a star. It's getting, sm- getting small in terms of size. You know, star size, yes, it's very big. But uh, in terms of what compared to what it was, light years across, it's now getting down to something you know, 100 times the size of the sun. And that's what we call a protostar. No energy source yet other than gravitational contraction. Gravity contracts, comes down. That's releasing all the energy that's powering the star and giving it a 3,000 degree degree temperature on its surface. We're also forming now planets. 
Right? At the same time, as the star begins to form, these are sort of those first couple stages, there's the big gas cloud you know, to scale, way gigantic out there. Stage two, as we've begun to fragment it, we get some of those fragments, much smaller. Stages three and four that we've been looking at, starting to form a protostar and starting to form a disk of material around it. So we're beginning to form, beginning uh, planetary formation. So this is the time when planets would begin to form. Again, it still takes a very long time. We're looking at millions of years, tens of thousands, hundred thousand years to go from between to go between those stages. But planet was that the planets are beginning to form, and we can see some evidence of that around stars. We see some stars that have these disks around them that are forming, and very warm disks that would be contain the material that will eventually form planets. Just as star formation takes a long time, planetary formation takes a long time. So we're not going to go back to these stars you know, 20 years from now and say, oh, look, there's the planets. You're going to have to wait you know, hundreds of thousands of years for them to form. But again, we're seeing another one of those, of those stages. And I've kind of emphasized here before, I didn't really uh, remind you about equilibrium yet, but the heating is all from the collapse. So all the heat, all the heat, all the temperature that's come to this star, all the heat, is from the collapse of the material, from this giant cloud down to a much smaller area. And that means that this is still not in equilibrium. We talked about equilibrium with the sun. right? The sun has gravity pulling it down, trying to crush it down to a point. It's got a, all those nuclear warheads essentially going off at its core every single second, trying to blow it apart. And those two are in a perfect balance. There's just as much energy being produced as its core, enough pressure from that as there is gravitational force pushing it down, and it stays in perfect balance like that for 10 billion years. These stars, at this stage, they're not in equilibrium. And we know that because they're still collapsing. They're still getting smaller and smaller, meaning that at this point, gravity's winning. So gravity's still winning. There's not enough energy being produced at the core to keep it from contracting. And it will keep doing that. It will contract down, contract down, until it heats up the core to enough temperature that it produces enough energy that it does become in equilibrium and does balance. And then it will become a star. That's when we'll hit stage seven, nicely balanced, and we don't want to worry about it for 10 billion years if it's a star like the sun. So here as we come down through those stages, the last stages, now we can actually watch it. We can actually see how the temperature and uh, luminosity change. So this star, which would have been very bright, but has been buried in the dust cloud, is slowly going to work its way out of there. It's going to come down. It's condensing down. That gravity is still pulling it down to a smaller object. So it goes from stage four to stage five to stage six. Its temperature stays about the same, gets a little bit warmer on the surface. It gets a lot fainter. It comes down to about the brightness of the sun. So it works its way down there. Stage six, that's where it becomes a star. So you see that kind of jump there at stage six. It's been slowly coming down this way. Okay, it landed up here. That's where it showed up first. Now it goes down nice and even, and then it has this little jump in here as the nuclear reactions start to kick in. Stage six is when it becomes a star. That's when it reached 10 million degrees, and now it can fuse hydrogen into helium and it has an energy source. Still not in equilibrium. 
Okay, it's, it's making hydrogen. It's got nuclear reactions going on in its core, but it's still not enough to balance gravity. So gravity is still pulling it down, and it follows this little crooked little path as it works its way to the main sequence. When the energy production at the core becomes enough, as you go from 6 to 7, the temperature at the core is still increasing. When it becomes enough that that energy production exactly balances gravity, it stops. Energy production continues, but the contraction stops. So gravity's been, uh, been held back for a short time. Maybe a few million years if it's a giant star, real big star. Maybe a few billion years if it's a star closer to the size of the sun. Maybe even longer if it's a much smaller star. But gravity has now been held in check. It's not doing anything except keeping the star in perfect balance. That's when it gets to that nice boring stage, stage 7. The longest stage of a star's life, but not much happens there. It just sits there. Fortunate for us, the sun is in the middle of that stage. You know, we don't want to, if the sun were going through that, we'd be getting temperatures and things would all be changing very drastically over those times. So we know that when we reach stage 7, that essentially everything stays constant for many billions of years for a star like the sun. So let's summarize stage 6 and stage 7. Again, stage 6 is the, the big event. That's when it really becomes a star. That core temperature reaches 10 million degrees. All of a sudden, you've got the density is high enough, the temperature is high enough, that you can take those two protons and they can smash together and they'll actually stick. You've got enough energy there, you've got enough temperature there to be able to do that. Before that, those two protons would get close together, very high speeds, but they still wouldn't get close enough that they'd repel each other before the strong nuclear force would kick in and grab them together. So at this point, stage five, we're still at a protostar. We're producing energy only through gravitational collapse. At stage six, we now become a star. The protostar has actually become a star. It's actually producing its own energy. And as I mentioned, I was showing it on the graph. I mentioned a lot of this that the star is going to continue to contract even though it's producing energy. It's not all done. It's not in equilibrium yet because it's producing you know, some of the energy it needs to, to counteract gravity, but not all of it. It needs to produce a little bit more energy than that. So it continues to contract. That heats up the core. You heat up the core, the nuclear reactions go faster and faster. And as they go faster and faster, you're producing more energy. So that comes closer and that slows down, the, slows down the, the contraction a little bit more until you reach the equilibrium point, until you reach a point where you're producing exactly as much energy, exactly as much energy in the core as is needed to keep gravity from pulling that uh, star further down. And that's when it reaches equilibrium. If we're looking at a star like the sun, it'll now stay, stay in stage 7 for 10 billion years. It's not going to change significantly in terms of size. It's not going to change significantly in terms of temperature. And that's the time. These are the types of stars you want to look for if you're looking for life elsewhere. Right? You want to look for a star that lasts a long time, that has time so that life has time to form on the planets that will form around it. It'll stay on stage 7 as long as it's got hydrogen to fuse in its core. And the sun has enough hydrogen to burn for about 10 billion years. Gone through about five of them, it's got about five billion more years to go. Once it uses up that hydrogen, then it gets interesting again. So this may be the longest stage of the star's life, but it's also the most boring. 
There's not a lot, there's not a lot going on. Once it uses it up, then it starts to move on the HR diagram again. And that'll be the subject of the next chapter. So we kind of skip stage seven. We go to stage seven. Yeah, it's there. Um, start off in the next chapter. We'll start at stage seven and say, okay, it lived its life. Now we're going to talk about the end state. What happened? What's the interesting stuff that happens after it uses up all that hydrogen? So here's a couple. I'm going to show you a few pictures here. Here's a few more. Um, we actually see some things like jets forming. As, these, as the material collapses. This is one example here. You see the whole nebula out here. And as the star is collapsing, well the star is right down here at the center. Hardly even visible, still buried within everything. But it does throw material out. As it collapses, as that car star collapses to a disk, actually material gets thrown out along its axis perpendicular to the disk. And we see those, that material gets thrown out. And what happens here is you're seeing it illuminate some of that gas and dust. So as it strikes, as it smashes into that gas and dust, see, star's still invisible here, but the material is spewing out here. You see a bright object here where the edge of that jet is hitting. So sort of where it's impacting material in the interstellar medium. Same thing on the opposite side. You get two jets, you get one shoved out this way and one shoved out this way. Now that happens a lot in astronomy. We see a lot of these jets in terms, not only in terms of star formation, but we'll also see them in terms of when we talk about black holes, when we talk about um, galaxies, the centers of galaxies forming. There are very, these jets are very, very common in astronomy. It's very common when you form a disk of material that material ends up getting thrown out along the edges. So there's just a sort of an introduction to that. We'll look at that a little bit more uh, in future, future chapters. We'll talk about some of those jets. They could. You would get some pressure from those in terms of collapsing. Is that what you're yeah. meaning? Yeah, you certainly could get some collapse from those. Um, depends on how big, how big they are and where they happen to be hitting. You certainly could, you could help with some of the compression. I don't know if there'd be enough energy there to initially start something big collapsing. Might be too small for that. But it could certainly, as it started to fragment, it might help, help the process along. Yeah? Why are there jets? Why are there jets? Black hole jets. I understand. I did the, I did the article okay. on that. Okay. Why, do they, why do they come out of a, a new star? I don't understand. It's, it's the material is spiraling in on that disk, just like a black hole. It's the same kind of thing. As the material is spiraling in, uh, the way the energy works, the way everything balances, it throws the material out. I mean, it's the same process that happens for a black hole. It's just the black hole is a little more intense. Yeah. These jets are very mild compared to the ones you'll get from a black hole or compared to the ones you'll get from the center of a galaxy, which is really just talking about a massive black hole. But the process is exactly, is exactly the same. It's the material spiraling in and then gets thrown out. Some of it gets thrown out just by that, by that energy as it spirals in. Okay. Here's a couple more protostars uh, looking in the infrared in one case and in the visible. You can see how it's, yes, it's, in there, in the vis it's there in the visible. You can see it. But if you can tell from that image, it's not a beautiful, bright, you know, high resolution image. It's hard to see in there. It's hard to get through there with visible light because there's so much dust around it blocking out that light. So very difficult to get in there and see that. This one you're seeing something in the infrared, so it's brighter. Actually stands out a little bit more. But you can get the idea still some disk of material sort of around it 
And part of that may still be blocked off. You may not be seeing all of that star there. Some of it may still be blocked off by that dust. So a couple examples of what we can see as uh, protostars. So we can see most of these stages. We can see them in the radio. We can see them in the infrared. You've got to use the radio in the infrared in the early stages just because they don't emit enough visible light. And even when they start emitting a lot of visible light, they're buried. They're buried in a big dust cloud, so it's very hard to see them. All right, so we formed a star like the sun. How about a bigger star? How about a smaller star? Pretty much about the same. There really isn't a big difference in how the star, in, in how the star forms. If that, if that initial cloud is the mass of the sun, there's the path I looked at, we looked at before. Cools off, gets smaller, little hook there, and ends up on the main sequence. Well, a star three times the mass of the sun does the same thing, same pattern. A star a third the mass of the sun does essentially the same thing. The only difference is that they're shifted a little bit. You're going to be shifted. The higher mass stars are going to be further to the left. The lower mass stars are going to be further to the right. But there's not really a big difference in what happens. The shape, the, what's going on in the center of those stars is essentially the same. We talked about the collapse. It collapses, it heats up. It's going to reach equilibrium at a different point, and that's why we get the main sequence, because the equilibrium is reached at a different point. For a massive star, it's going to be way up here. And for a less massive star, it's going to be way down here, is where you're going to reach your equilibrium point. But the pattern, exactly what's happening in terms of how I talked about the fragmentation, as we talked about the collapse, all of that's going to be exactly the same whether the star is you know, a tenth the mass of the sun or ten times the mass of the sun. The pattern, pattern is exactly the same. That's not the same in the next chapter. When we start talking about the end states of a star, they're quite different depending on how massive the star is. So very different in terms of what will happen to a star a tenth the mass of the sun and one ten times or twenty or thirty times the mass of the sun. Then it's quite different when we get to the next chapter. Oh, so the, again, the, the big difference, the only difference is going to be where they end up on the main sequence and the amount of time that it takes to get there. I think I mentioned that one of the last lectures. We talked about how long it would take. The star that's forming way up here at you know, 20 or 30 times the mass of the sun is going to form very quickly. The star that forms down here at a tenth the mass of the sun is going to form more slowly. More gravity, it's going to collapse, collapse faster. The, slow, the smaller stars are going to collapse a lot slower. So the time frames are different, but the pattern, exactly the process that I talked about, is exactly the same as what we talked about for the sun. So we don't need to go through it all again. It's the, sa it's the same thing. So we had stars that were a tenth the mass of the sun. How small can a star be? Well, it's a good question. In terms of regular living stars, in terms of not dead remnants, which can be very tiny, there is a limit to how big a star has to be a certain size. It has to be big enough that as it collapses, that central temperature reaches 10 million degrees, plus or minus. If it gets only to 9 million degrees, it's not hot enough to start nuclear reactions. It's never going to burn that hydrogen to helium. If it gets to 8 million degrees, 9 million degrees, there's a limit there where you're not going to be able to actually produce any energy. And our definition of a star is that it's producing energy in its core. Yes, sir? Okay, most systems are binary systems, right? Yes. Is, does that happen when you have something like Jupiter 
it gets real massive, real, real big. Yeah. And then that condenses something like Jupiter into another star. Yeah, you would form, you'd, instead of forming a small planet like ours did in terms of Jupiter, most of the mass went to the Sun. Depending on how those stars fragment, you know, you might get two big fragments that actually coalesce and become, you know, a pair of stars. So, but what you get in this case is these stars are too small. If the fragment is less than, you know, a small fraction, what is it, about point, point zero eight, a little less than a tenth the mass of the Sun it won't get hot enough in its core to burn hydrogen. So no nuclear fusion, it never becomes a star. It becomes what we call a brown dwarf or a failed star. Now, sometimes Jupiter is thought of as that way. Jupiter is really much too small. Jupiter wasn't like close to being a star. You could have put three Jupiters there and smushed them all together. That still wouldn't be a star. You could put ten Jupiters together. You know, you don't have enough mass there. You still need a lot of mass. So Jupiter may be tremendous in terms of a planet, but it isn't even up to you know, these, what we call these brown dwarf stars, which are visible. They're things that we can detect. And there's a couple images of them here taken. Are these all, this is infrared. These, I believe, are visible. So you can actually see one. You can see a star, and you can find a brown dwarf around it. You'd be able to measure its mass if it's orbiting around something. You'd be able to get the masses. And you can figure out how much material is actually there and how, what the temperature is like. So it's much too big to be a Jupiter. But it's not, doesn't have enough mass, doesn't have enough energy that it actually kicked in and started nuclear reactions itself and actually became a very small star. So there are cases where you get that, and there may be a lot of them. This taken in the infrared, a lot of the small objects in here would actually be you know, brown dwarf stars left over from the formation, the little fragments that were just not big enough to do anything else. And there could be a lot of brown dwarf stars out there in the universe. They're going to be hard to find. Right? They're very faint. Yes, sir? So, assuming a brown dwarf still holds its original mass and everything, mm-hmm. over time, could it collect enough material that it could turn into a small star? It would have to collect a lot of material. I mean, if you're talking, let's just say, you know, you have to collect you know, even a hundredth of the mass of the sun, that's a lot of material. So the odds of it doing that, and if it's forming in the cluster with these other stars, which are clearing out all the material, it's very unlikely that that will ever happen. Unless it is in a situation, and that, I've never heard of the situation, but if it, if it could be, if it were close enough to another star, and that star went through its life and became a red giant, it could transfer material. There's a possibility where it could happen. We see that in some stages at the end of a star's life. I've never heard of someone suggest that that could happen, but it would make sense. That's the only way you're going to go, going to be going about doing it. I mean, it's not like you know, uh, just a brown dwarf star traveling through space is never going to pick up enough material to become a star. But when you get mass transferred from like two stars close together, may, maybe it could. It would depend on how big that other star was and how much mass was able to be transferred. So that's a brown dwarf. That's really what we call a failed star. Now, we look at star clusters. In fact, you graphed some star clusters a little while ago, uh, looking at the different, different uh, the HR diagram, plotting out the HR diagram for them. But the nice thing about star clusters is that that cluster is formed out of the same cloud. So it's all the same material, all mixed up together. So that means there's no difference in terms of the composition. They all formed at about the same time. That cloud started collapsing. So if we have a cluster of stars, they all formed roughly the same time. It might have taken a couple million years for the stars to form, but 
millions of years versus many billions of years for the average lifetime of a star. No big deal. So you're taking out a couple effects. You're taking out the effects that age or the compositions might have. And they give us a way to study the mass, study the effect of the mass on how stars evolve. How do they change over time? So not as they form necessarily, although you can look at that as well, but what happens at the end states of their lives? So all those stars, they form at the, they form at the same time. Yeah, some formed a little earlier, some formed a little later. I've already told you some of the more massive stars will form quickly. Some of the smaller ones will form a little bit later. But it's relatively the same time. They're, they're not that you have this star that's 5 billion years old, and this star that's a billion years old, and this star that just formed last week. Right? You don't have that kind of range. You have stars that might in a much more narrow range. So it's able to study by looking at all the stars in the cluster and looking at their HR diagrams. That's what you've already plotted once. right? Hate me for plotting all those little dots, right? So you plotted all those little dots. We had an HR diagram, and you saw that they were quite different. There were two clusters I had to plot, and they were quite different. And I think there's one of them that you plotted. This was the Pleiades, was one of the ones, one of the clusters you plotted. And that had a main sequence. In fact, that may look familiar to you. Huh? Had a main sequence like that, and the stars went up a little bit, started to turn up over here. That's an example of an open star cluster, a very young star cluster. Open star cluster is a very young star cluster. And by open cluster, it just means it's not bound together gravitationally. So if we could again come back in tens of millions and hundreds of millions and a billion years, these stars are slowly spreading out from each other. They're not bound together. There's not enough mass here to hold them all together into a fixed cluster. So they're slowly spreading apart and will slowly dissipate out into space. Very young, we also know by where those stars are turning off the main sequence. It formed essentially all at the same time, so most of the stars are still on the main sequence here. But at some point, and I had you estimate that, where did they turn off the main sequence at some sort of level? And you could get an estimate of the age, how old that cluster is. The further down the main sequence that turnoff point becomes, then the older the cluster becomes. So this is a very young cluster because we have lots of big stars Lots of big main sequence stars still there. So that's an open cluster. The other one we looked at, and I didn't put the name on this one, so I don't know if that's exactly the one you looked at, but it looked something like that that you plotted. This is a globular cluster. A globular cluster is an old cluster of stars, and there's a lot of stars there. You see a lot more stars than we saw in the previous image. They are bound together. So there's enough gravity that all those stars are held together, so they'll stay there. They're orbiting around some central point in this. So it's a big cluster of stars that stays together. So we'll be able to see it over a much longer period of time. We can see these clusters after 10 billion years have passed because they're all bound together. They're not going anyplace. We try to come back and look at the Pleiades in a few billion years. They're all spread out across the sky. How do we know what part of a cluster they were? These are all together. So we see that here's the main sequence up here. A lot of the main sequence is gone. Anything that was up here on the main sequence is all gone. There's still part of it remaining. Those are the stars that live longer, so stars like the sun in here. We haven't reached 10 billion years worth. And these other stars have started to move off the main sequence and moved up into the red giant region. So they're actually, you can see them slowly moving. Are you ever going to see an individual one of them move there? No. You're not going to be able to watch this star and move from here, and then next week it'll be here. You're not going to see it progress. 
but we can see it because we see stars in every single stage. We see stars that had a little bit more mass that went a little quicker. They're already further along. We see stars that are a little further behind in mass. So it actually traces out the path that these stars of this mass, roughly, that are leaving the main sequence, that they will take over the course of time. And that's something that we will go through in a little, lot, more, lot more detail in the next chapter. What happens to these stars? How do they go up to the red giant region? They actually jump back down and there's a, another branch over here where they'll sit for a while and go through their, as they go through the end states of their lives. But this is essentially the point where they're turning off the main sequence is where the stars have exhausted their hydrogen. They're out of hydrogen in their core. What's happening in the outside, that really doesn't change much. But in the core, it's used up all of its hydrogen and is then forced to what? You've got no energy source. Gravity kicks in again. Gravity starts to collapse it. And gravity collapsed the inner layers. The outer layers expand. So the inner layers collapse down. The energy that's produced around that causes the outer layers to expand. And you become a red giant star. So those stars that have used up their hydrogen move up towards the red giant, move up towards the red giant region. Now we'll go through that again in a little bit more detail in the next chapter. Here's a couple of images of Orion again. You've got a visible light image on the left hand side and an infrared on the right. And again, you're, start, you're seeing the star formation. You don't see a whole lot on the right. You see it on the left. Or, sorry, you don't see it on the left, you see it on the right. These are to the same scale. All the stars are the same. You can trace out little pairs. There's a pair of stars right there. And when you look in the infrared, you can see through all this gas and dust. And we can see the cluster that is in the process of forming. So probably an open star cluster right now is in the process of forming in Orion. Again, you want to come back and see it in a few million years? You know, where's our time travel machine to go see it? We want to travel forward a few million years and get an image of that and see what does the star cluster look like that's in Orion right now. Will it look something like the Pleiades? Will it look something else? It'll probably be a, an open star cluster and they, those stars will slowly dissipate out into the rest of the galaxy again over billions of years. Where am I? Okay. Now, here's an example of a simulation. You know, we can't watch them. We can't sit there and watch a star form. And I'm going to show you a little bit better clip of this. I've actually got the video to show you. So this is just one still frame of it. Doesn't show you a whole lot. But I actually have the video that we can take a look at here in a minute. But what the, what the astronomers did was to make a gas cloud, a theoretical gas cloud in the computer, and then start it collapsing. Let it start collapsing and see what happened. And this is one frame from it that shows, you know, here's some of that gas left around. You still see that around in Orion. Here's stars that are forming. You have the little stars. These are stars that have formed from this material. You start off with only a gas cloud, nothing else. And you start to form, you'll eventually will form stars. There are some with very small mass that might be a brown dwarf. You have stars with disks forming around them. So you're seeing a lot of the things that we talk about in this, in this simulation. So, let me get that video. Let me go ahead and do the video and then I'll come back. I got a little summary, so I'll come back to this in a second to do. But let me go ahead and do the video first. Here it is. And this takes a couple of minutes to, to run, but it starts off with there is it's not the sun. That's a giant cloud of gas that is light years across. And as we start the simulation, it'll start to collapse. Time frame is shown up here. You've gone 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 years. So you're taking thousands of many, many, many years to be able to form this. The yellower it gets, the denser the material is becoming. So you're starting to see 
starting fragmentation, starting to see groups of stars forming. Why did it just get darker all of a sudden? They changed the scale on you. So it got so dense that they had to change the scale a little bit. But you start to see some central areas where, the, where it's forming. Scale's changing a little bit again there because the material's getting denser and you're starting to get stars forming. You'll see a few stars. Yep, there they're coming. As they pass in close to each other, you'll see them getting flung around through the gravity of, other, of the other stars and of the central areas where the stars are forming. You see some with little disks around them. Some will form with that. Some will form around, just scattered around here. Still have one kind of central area that's forming. Could that be a more massive star or is it a grouping of the smaller grouping of stars? Again, that whole thing took, we're at about two, almost 250,000 years worth of simulation. Running a little further, looking right in at this one section here. And you may recognize that's about where that image was taken, the one that was used in the previous slide. But you're forming a little cluster of stars. Now how close does this look to something like we see in Orion? Let's zoom back out. And it's about, that, I mean, it's not going to match perfectly, but does that look roughly like what we see in Orion? Oops. And as it ends, but it looks roughly like what you'd see. Let me go back to that ending and pause it there. That doesn't look all that different than what we saw in that infrared image of Orion. Lots of stars that have formed, and you still had some gas. You still had some areas where stars were forming. You had lots of gas and dust around uh, from left over from that, from that formation. So I think that gives you a little better image than just looking at that nice still image. It's yeah, pretty, yeah, but it doesn't tell you a whole lot. Here you actually get to see that. So this is the way astronomers can actually see star formation. You know, we can see what's going on in this case. Yeah? They'd be stars. If they're, if depending on their mass, and I can't tell the mass of these in the simulation. If they're massive enough, they're going. And if they're showing up on here, they're probably at least brown dwarfs, if not full stars. Okay. So they'd just be, they'd be getting flung out and of the. In the center where it's really yellow, mm -hmm. would that be like a more massive star? Then you're probably forming some kind of more massive star that might have been a central area that had more mass to it. It might be instead of forming brown dwarfs and solar mass type stars, maybe you're forming a star that's. 10 times the mass of the sun. So maybe you're forming some little some large some larger stars, larger stars there. So then the brown dwarfs wouldn't last that long. Their lifespan would be Oh, no, their lifespan would be forever. There nothing's going to have they're just going to be sitting there. So unless the odd chance that they crashed into something else, the odds of two stars colliding in the sky are like taking two little BBs and bouncing them around this room and expecting them to ever collide. Could it happen? Yeah, but is it likely? No. If you had two proto stars, you'd form a larger star. It would form, probably form a larger star. They'd coalesce together. It's still if if they're forming close together, like two fragments that were close, that's a possibility. You could coalesce stars in that case. If you just have them traveling through space, they're most likely just to pass right by each other. You know, even if a star passed through our solar system and it passed through at the distance of the Earth, it's not going to do much to the sun. Now for us, yeah, it would, be, it, would be quite, it would be quite damaging to the planets in the solar system, depending on exactly where it passed. But it would make little difference to the sun. The sun would still, would still be there. So let me go back and finish these up. We're just about done with this chapter. So again, that's the image that I showed you there. And those first few stars that form, 
can actually, depending on how big they are, those very big stars, the O stars and the B stars, the ones that don't live very long, have an intense amount of energy that they put out. And they really work to clear a lot of this dust. So that sort of minimizes the amount of star formation later. So whatever forms later has been pushed away. All those big stars have sort of cleared out this gas and dust within, within that. So once the big stars form in a star cluster, they start decreasing the likelihood of other stars forming just because they're pushing that material further away. A supernova, yes. If one of them were to go supernova, would make a big difference. Would make a big difference as well. So let me finish up here. We'll finish up 11 so I can start on 12 right at the beginning of uh, class on Friday. Um, interstellar medium had two parts, two components. There was gas and dust. Gas, just primarily hydrogen. Some other compounds and molecules mixed in. Dust was thicker, bigger clumps of material. We talked about the different types of nebulae. We had emission nebulae, glowing gas. We had reflection nebulae that were reflecting the light of a hot star. And we had dark nebulae, which were dark, dark clouds, very cold. That's where the stars are forming. So we were once, you know, our sun and our, and our planets all were once in one of these in the pre when they were beginning to form. How do we study these? They're hard to see. They don't put out any visible light. They're very cold. But we can use radio waves. Radio waves at 21 centimeters especially allow us to look into those clouds. And then what we kind of went through today, we went through star formation. We start off with fragmenting to take that cloud of gas and dust and it begins to fragment. And each of those fragments will become a star or a group of stars. Those collapse, once they get hot enough, we get down to 10 million degrees. This core be it becomes a star. And we've seen these. We've seen the fragments. We can actually detect those in the radio. We can detect protostars in the infrared part of the spectrum. So now that we can see all of that range, we can see those. Where they end up on the main sequence, the process is always the same for forming a star. But mass just determines where they're going to end up. Are they going to end up in the upper left or the lower right? Depends on how much mass there is. And as we looked at in the simulation, one cloud doesn't form one star, one, one star usually forms, one, one star, one cloud usually forms a cluster of stars, so a whole grouping of stars. Sorry, I went a little over there, but I went, that way we're done. Questions? Questions? No? We're ready to go. Get out of here. All right. Have a good rest of the day, and I will see you Friday. We'll start on Chapter 12.